Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journeying beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. And welcome to episode two of Anthology, a podcast exploring science fiction storytelling in television's golden age, uh, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. This episode of Anthology is going to cover episodes three and four of The Twilight Zone, both from 1959, uh, Mr. Denton on Doomsday, and The 16mm Shrine. It's a very good episode. Both uh, both episodes have in some interesting correlation to one another some things some commonality between them that's that's interesting and it'll uh give some good discussion for for me to go over um before i get to the episode i just want to let you guys know that you can find me on twitter at obsessive viewer and also go to the facebook page for anthology and uh click like tell your friends all that stuff it's at facebook.com slash anthology pod and of course, and this is this is probably the most important aspect of, of the show, or what I hope will be the most important aspect of the show, uh, leave me a voicemail. Call me up and let me know what you think of the show. Uh, uh, let me know what you think of the Twilight Zone episodes coming up. Give your take on it so I can kind of have a sounding board to go off of for episodes to come. You can do that at uh, by calling 317-762-6099. Uh, just leave a voicemail, tell me what your name is, where you're from, and anything you want me to cover. And I'll be glad to play the play the voicemail on the episode so it's not just me talking to you for an hour. So without further ado, let's get to the episode discussions. So the first episode I'll be covering this week is Mr. Denton on Doomsday. Uh, this was the fifth episode of The Twilight Zone produced and the third one to air. Um, it was aired on October 16th, 1959, and... Uh, as usual, I'll go through a plot summary and then a breakdown of the cast and then get into my feelings on the episode. Um, as always, this episode summary will have spoilers in it, so fair warning. In the Old West, Al Denton was once a feared gunslinger. Now, however, he's the town drunk, forced to sing for his drinks. When a man named Henry Fate comes into town to peddle his goods... A glance at Denton's hand gives him gives the drunk the ability to disarm a bully and win back the town's respect. That respect attracts a young hotshot who challenges Denton to a duel. Desperate to win, Denton buys a potion from fate that promises to give the drunk ten seconds of deadly accuracy. When he confronts the hotshot for the duel, however, he sees the young man taking the same potion. What follows is a showdown in which both men are manage to disarm each other and uh, inflicting injuries on each other that will prevent them from ever handling a gun again. So I'll talk about how I feel about the episode in a bit, but I want to talk about the cast. Um, the titular character, Al Denton, is played by Dan Duryea. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, Dan Duryea. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, 
He was a Cornell gra- graduate, and he actually played Hank Hanneman in 1942's The Pride of the Yankees, a movie that I haven't seen yet, although it's on my radar. I actually just recently listened to an episode of Movie Madness podcast, and they did an episode about baseball movies, which we actually also did an episode about baseball movies on The Obsessive Viewer recently, um, and they talked up The Pride of the Yankees and made me really want to see it, so I'll go back and check that out. But Dan Durya, he was also in... It's worth noting he was also in Battleham, the 1957 Rock Hudson movie that actually the poster of which was was what triggered Mike Ferris's memory of being in the Air Force in the Twilight Zone pilot episode Where is Everybody. Um purely coincidental. I don't think that they cast uh Durya in <laughs> in the role as a callback or anything like that, but um I thought that was an interesting little piece of trivia. Um he also appeared in The Flight of the Phoenix in 1965, opposite Jimmy Stewart, Ernest Borgnine, and Richard Attenborough. Um, probably most notable, his most notab- notable role was in 60, 60 episodes of the 1960 prime, 1960s primetime soap, Peyton Place. Um, he eventually died in 1968 at the age of 61. So he had a pretty, he had a pretty memorable career in terms of some of the, some of the, performances he gave um throughout throughout the career um playing henry j fate is malcolm atterbury uh he'll appear in another episode of the twilight zone later in the series but he was most notably a supporting actor he had a lot of tv credits he made his big screen debut in 1958's dragnet movie and he also appeared in hitchcock's the birds as deputy al malone but he he was never really he was never really a star he was just a supporting actor which is a very admirable admirable profession um i don't know anything about him as a person but i have to say that as far as uh as far as i've read about it, malcolm atterbury i can't help but just admire his life um <laughs> he was born into a wealthy family and pursued acting and he he went through he went into theater and he kind of he cultivated this reputation as a solid and reliable stage actor and then he jumped on to supporting roles in movies and TV but he still had a, a deep-seated love of theater he ended up actually owning two theaters in upstate New York that he that he uh, uh, interacted with and and managed and everything uh, throughout his career while also doing supporting roles in movies and TV um, and he died of old age in 1992 Um you can't really uh, like the idea of someone following following their passion to that extent and kind of keeping it humbled i guess is something that's really aspirational to me at least um who knows he could have been a dick i don't know um the the last uh actor i want to point out is Martin Landau is in this episode as uh, Dan uh Hoteling um, <laughs> I probably butchered that pronunciation, but as Dan, he's the, he's the bully that, that antagonizes Denton in the first couple acts of the, of this, of the episode. And Martin Landau, I, I mean, he's, he's noticeable. He's notable from several, several, several different roles. Um, he's a very famous character actor, but I know him best from the majestic, um, as Harry Trimble, uh, the, uh, the father who, mistaken mistakes um jim carrey's character as his son who died in world war ii 
that role in particular is just very touch, touching to me and it resonates with me because he gives this nice monologue um, about how the majestic, the, the town movie theater that he that he runs is like what that theater represents to the community. And it's something that I just, the way that he delivers that line, he delivers it with so much passion that I just, I it, it really speaks to me. Aside from that, though, Martin Landau also appeared in two episodes of The Twilight Zone and two episodes of The Outer Limits, so his name will be popping up throughout the course of uh, of anthology here. Um, notab- most notable role for him, uh, he he gained his gain to fame was from the Mission Impossible t- uh, television series, in which he actually appeared uh, in seventy six episodes total. Uh, let's see. And then writing this episode was Rod Sterling, which, wow, did I seriously just say Sterling again? Holy crap. Wow. Writing this episode was Rod Sterling. Uh, again, again, he wrote a vast majority of the season one episodes and season two and onward, actually, up until season four when he actually left the show. But, uh... Serling's original concept for this episode involved a school teacher magically getting his wish to become a gunfighter. Um, he opted for something less superficial, and I think that was the right course of action because I'll touch on this when I, when I get to the feelings as a viewer, but it, there's a very, at its core, Mr. Denton on Doomsday is about a guy getting a second chance, and I don't see how the story of a school teacher magically getting a wish to become a gunfighter that that's more wish fulfillment and the, obviously wish fulfillment, but it's more fantasizing and it's not, I appreciate the tone of, of the final product, um, which is why Rod Serling didn't go with that episode, uh, plot. Um, also it's worth noting, uh, directed by Alan Reisner. He actually, he also directed the, the time element, uh, which as I've said before is, the precursor to the Twilight Zone. It was going to be his. Uh, it was basically the the script that Serling sold to CBS under the title The Twilight Zone, and then eventually it's the production that got um, CBS interested in ordering the series for for The Twilight Zone. But more on that later. As I said, I've co- I'll cover that in a uh, bonus episode at the end of the season. Um, so my feelings as a viewer on this episode. Um, eh, it's kind of a mixed bag, honestly. Um, I really like the second chance theme. It's a very kind of, kind of heartwarming story because you kind of immediately get behind, um, behind Al Denton as a, as a protagonist, even though he is a very down on his luck guy who is, he's, he's almost overly sympathetic because he's being just bullied by these, by these, you know, nefarious types who are forcing him to sing and dance just so he can get a drink. And it's, I mean, it's a tragic, it's a tragic viewpoint and it's a very, very, it's sympathetic to a fault. It's potentially too just overly sympathetic and, and, you know, honestly, uh, it, it makes Al Denton look really pathetic and, uh, and there's certain degrees of patheticness that, that an audience can get behind, but this runs the runs the course of being just just way too pathetic. Um, but it's handled well. Um, I mean, it, I mean, the acting is is well done. Um, 
aside from the, the theme, I, I like the Western setting and I like the music. There's this kind of little melody that plays throughout it. That's kind of this, it, it's almost, it, I don't know much about music admittedly, but it's kind of a, it's not quite what you would expect from a Western setting. And it's not quite what you'd expect from such a almost depressing kind of character study, I guess. Uh, but it's kind of this nice little, like, kind of almost upbeat melody that, that kind of plays out. That's kind of, I don't know, it, it, I really got into it. Um, and also, I like the supernatural element. Henry Henry Fate is this mysterious character who can influence uh, influence events around him just by looking at something. And, and that's something that I kind of got into because, I mean, the last couple episodes or the first two episodes have been kind of rooted in realism to an extent. The character of death in uh, One for the Angels was, was a bit supernatural, but it was also kind of, kind of a, his, his depiction, the depiction of death is something that's tied to, you know, human, humans understanding or, or interpretation of what life is. So it's kind of having this other character in this episode be, a supernatural entity to an extent or having some kind of superpowers is, is different from that in that it's undefined. And it's something that I kind of, I kind of, I got into, um, I actually dug it a little bit. Um, but like I said, this is, was a mixed bag, even though, even though those four, four or five elements, um, kind of fused together, like separately those those elements are good and and I really enjoyed them as aspects of a, of an episode of television something about them all together just just lacked a punch for me um this episode's well written and the story reaches a satisfying conclusion but honestly it just feels like it's on rails um there's a story that Serling wanted to tell and he hits its beats and then it's done it's kind of not so much that it lacks the signature Twilight Zone twist at the end, because, I mean, it does. It does and it doesn't, because, I mean, you know, I wasn't expecting them to injure each other and prevent them. But even then, if it did have a, just a traditional twist, that would have hampered it for me, because the story being told is about Denton reclaiming his life and about his... Uh, his counterpart, counterpoint, or counterpart in the in the in the final duel, being um, incapacitated, and and the idea that Denton has saved this kid's life, or at least prolonged it by by taking away his ability to fire a gun for the rest of his life, um, like that. So that that interchangeability, that that kind of dual dual character fate, was really handled well and everything. It's just something about it just felt just strange to me. I, I like the supernatural aspect, like I said, but the superpower slash science fiction aspect of Henry fate, um, is handled well. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's intriguing. It's entertaining, but we don't really have any context for who or what he is. I mean, I don't, is he a guardian angel or is the name fate? Is that, is that a little on the nose and is he supposed to be the personification of fate itself? It's up in the air, which I I don't mind ambiguity, but like, okay, okay. The twilight zone by definition, the reason that the twilight zone is so is handled so well is, is so well received is that it pits ordinary people into, for lack of a better word, the twilight zone, (laughs) um, the world in the, in, 
in the Twilight Zone, the world in these episodes is the Twilight Zone. That's what they call it. But the world in this episode is a wholly regular Old West setting. Um, and so there isn't really the only the only Twilight Zone aspect of it is Henry Fate himself, which, as I said before, he's not giving we're not giving any context for who or what he is or what he's hoping to accomplish. I don't. I assume that he's a do-gooder and, and everything like that, but it's more he's he exists as a vessel to um, to give Al Denton his second chance, which is fine. But I just kind of would have liked a little bit more clarity on what what it all meant, um, at least at least from his perspective, I guess. Like I said, I I didn't dislike the episode. In fact, uh, for all intents and purposes, I really liked the story of Denton's second chance, and I really, really liked the resolution of the episode and how it followed the theme of, of second chance and, and uh, uh, picking yourself back up, I guess. It, it followed that really well. Um it ends on the, the just the way it ends on the note that neither man will fire a gun again um it's it's really nice it's a good story it's it's a good story but it just didn't didn't really affect me um that much um yeah i don't know it it wasn't a bad episode but I don't know if I really have anything else to really say about it honestly <laughs> um there's a really interesting point though after fate has intervene, intervened and defeated the bully on uh, Denton's behalf, uh, there's a really good scene because it's it's when he's earned the respect of the town and and everyone respects him again. Um, and there's a really nice moment where um, someone refers refers to him as uh, Mr. Denton, and he's just like, "What? What? Like you're like uh, he's he's astonished that people refer to him as anything, but um, you know." anything with any kind of officiality or, um, respect, honestly. Um, but there's a really nice moment between him and Liz played by, uh, Jeannie Cooper, who's kind of, I don't, I don't think she'd really be his love interest in the episode, but she's, she's the, she's a, the, a, the female lead in the episode. But there's a really nice moment between Denton and her where after they've, uh, after he's won the respect of everything, he's worried. He's freaking out. And the reason that he's freaking out is because he knows that now that he's a gunfighter again or now that he has the reputation of a gunfighter again, people are going to come and and want to challenge him. And he, like he sees it as he's just signed his own death warrant. He's he's going to die. And it's it's a really not unlike last not unlike last episode with with uh, one for the angels with with. Uh, with a with a with a protagonist dealing with mortality and everything, this is kind of the same way, but it's more hurried, it's more rushed, it's more um, dramatic um, and less like introspective. But that one little scene is really uh, really opens a window to the Denton character. Um, yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't know. I it's not. It's it. It didn't blow away the other two episodes. It didn't. It didn't. It isn't a better episode for me than one for the angels or where is everybody? But I. I and I enjoyed it. It just. Just didn't really. Didn't really do it for me. So I don't know. Your mileage may vary. Um, contact me and let me know what you thought of the episode, though. Um, I'd love to hear from you.
Um, as far as historical and cultural context for the episode, I actually have something something for this one. <laughs> um, it's worth noting in the context of the late fifties and early sixties, and in in context of television of that era, um, it's really no surprise that the Twilight Zone had an episode that was set in the Old West, especially so soon in its run. Um, I don't know if this was a calculated move by Serling or just indicative of the times, but Western shows were insanely popular at the time. Um, Though Bonanza had premiered only a month before The Twilight Zone aired and wouldn't even become a hit until 1961, uh, Gunsmoke was four years into what would be a 20-year, 635-episode run. And... uh, and and if if I can go back a little bit in the chronology, I guess Gunsmoke premiered, and this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, Gunsmoke premiered in in 1955, four years before the Twilight Zone, and both that same year, Gunsmoke and the Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp were aired. Um, and those two those two shows really helped usher in an era where westerns all but dominated television. Um, and the Twilight Zone just happened to premiere when Western TV shows were at their absolute peak. In 1959, when the Twilight Zone premiered, um, in that year, primetime television was airing 26 Westerns. Um, and this is in the 50s. <laughs> this is when there's, like, not much on TV. Um, so it's so it's something that's kind of astonishing. So now that we have that in context, I'm not I'm not saying that... Serling wrote Mr. Denton on Doomsday with the intention of attracting fans of the Western genre to his little sci-fi anthology series. Um, sci-fi at the time was actually viewed as a very low form of storytelling. Um, there's an interview with Mike Wallace that uh, Serling did on September 22nd, 1959. He actually goes into um, censorship and, and stuff like that. I think I'm actually going to rip rip the audio and release it as a standalone episode, probably in the interim between season one and season two of this podcast. But, um, this interview took place a little over a week and a half before where is everybody was aired. And in it, um, if you look up, if you look up the YouTube video, it's about 10 or 11 minutes into the interview. Uh, Wallace actually said he, he asked Serling, he said, you're going to you're going to be obviously working so hard on the Twilight Zone that in essence for the time being and for the foreseeable future you've given up on writing anything important for television right <laughs> uh end quote um yeah so i i think that that kind of puts uh, that kind of opens a little bit of a window um for for us to see contextually where science fiction was at the time, um, science fiction theater was airing it w- was airing episodes. Actually, at this point, it was off the air. Now that I think about it, um, but uh, so science fiction was on television. Science fiction theater aired from 1955 to 1957, I believe, uh, airing like 79 episodes, I think. And so, so I mean, science fiction was on television and, and and was a part of it but it was so just under the radar just lowest like low on the totem pole of storytelling that it was just a a natural thing for Mike Wallace to just basically uh say something almost derogatory about the genre and uh 
insulting to to Serling. I don't know if he took it personally or not, but it was an interesting soundbite for sure. Um, in a very funny look back at how uh, how no one saw Twilight Zone coming um, in terms of its its uh, its stature and and its uh, quality, really. Um, but to get back to Mr. Denton on Doomsday, um, all, all of that is, is not to say that the Western setting was anything to do with my kind of lukewarm reception to the episode. Um, whether conscious or not, it's interesting to see such an early episode of the Twilight Zone play so much into what was popular at the time on television. But I don't believe that Serling, um, wrote it with the intention of getting viewers and if he did i don't think that i think that the quality of his output of content because like i said in uh the last episode he was just a machine like he wrote and wrote and wrote um i think part of that was that he had so much built up in his for lack of a better word in his soul um, from experiencing war and and just seeing just atrocities and everything, he had so much built up that he needed a release. Like in in the Twilight Zone was his just was the way that he that he released his his creativity and his demons really. Um, so having said that, I don't think that if he were to if he were to write this episode with the intention of getting rating getting of getting ratings and stuff. Um, I don't think that it would have tarnished the quality of it. I just don't think that I was really the viewer for it. And that's not, even, that's a little harsh to say anyway, because it's not like I've, like I've been saying, it's not like I didn't like the episode. It just wasn't really my thing, I guess. Um, yeah. So like I said, let me know what you thought. Uh, please. Um, try to put this episode into context for me or, or if you have a way to try to persuade me into liking this episode more, feel free to let me know and I'll, I'll reconsider it. I'll look at it again through a different perspective. Um, yeah, so that does it for the first episode of the, of this episode of the, of anthology. Um, as always, uh, before I move on to the next episode, here's a highlight from a recent episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at ObsessiveViewer.com. Um, the movie was fairly bloated, um, like a lot of movies tend to be anymore. Um, I, I think the movie's really just, this is really just a symptom of, you know, when 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 they try to reboot these franchises like this or make a fourth installment of something it's like you have to, you have to cram so many things into it because people have been desensitized to all the the majesty and the fun stuff that was in the first one or two or three or eight movies um and so you have to up the ante and when you do that it just becomes bloated and uh, things fall by the wayside and it's unfortunate and i think this movie fell victim to that unfortunately of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And that brings me to the next episode of this episode of Anthology, uh, The 16mm Shrine. It aired on October 23rd, 1959, and here's a, uh, here's a summary of the episode. Barbara Jean Trenton is an actress whose star has faded. 
She lives in the past by constantly rewatching her old movies in a dark, private screening room. When her concerned agent arranges a new role for in a film for her, she expects a leading role. However, reality hits her in the face when she finds out it's a bit part as a mother. This drives her further into her seclusion. When the agent brings her former leading man for a visit to cheer her up and to get her out of her self-induced isolation, the sight of the aged man before her pushes her over the edge. She then recedes into the screening room, and the next time she's seen, it's in the screen. Barbara is transported into the screen, into a world where she's admired and respected by her youthful co-stars. All right, so I'll start with the uh, rundown of the talent, as usual. Uh, Ida Lupina starred in this episode as Barbara Jean Trenton. She was an actress known for her hard luck dame roles in movies like High Sierra and Seawolf, both from 1941. Um, when roles became harder to come by, she turned to directing, writing, and producing, and she actually became a pioneer for women filmmakers, and she was actually the second woman to be admitted into the Directors Guild. Um, when it comes to The Twilight Zone, she's the only person in the series the series' entire history to appear in and direct episodes of the show. Um, after the 16mm Shrine, she would go on to direct season 5's The Masks in 1964. Uh, she also holds the distinction of being the only woman to direct an episode of The Twilight Zone. Kind of a reflection of the the time, I guess. Co-starring as Danny Weiss is uh, Martin Balsam. Um, I know him as Arbogast from uh, Hitchcock's Psycho, and he also had a role in 12 Angry Men, uh, both just in insanely amazing movies. Um, he trained at the actor studio after serving in World War II, and he kind of had a few minor television roles before his big break in, on the waterfront in 1954, his big, big screen break. That was his big screen debut. Um, he was also in an episode of... Hit Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which is what actually got him cast as Arbogast and Psycho, which was a role that, you know, uh, people knew him for throughout his entire life. There was actually a story where he um, he would get angry when people would reference the scene where he falls backwards on the staircase in, uh, in Psycho because he wanted to be known for other things, other roles. But his feelings about the about the role or, or his, the reception to the role, I guess, um, aside, Psycho actually opened a lot of doors. Uh, after that, he was in Breakfast at Tiffany's and Cape Fear. He went on to eventually win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1965 for a role in uh, A Thousand Clowns, a movie I, I haven't seen, but uh, he, he was pretty proud of that, I guess. Um, after that, he started acting in European movies and kind of fell in love with Italy. And he spent his later years in Italy, where he died of a heart attack in 1996. So he had a really, uh, a really, really good career, uh, much like Ida Lupina. Or Lupino. Um, <clears throat> it's also worth mentioning that Martin Balsam, if you read his trivia or his biography on uh, IMDb, it's clearly written by someone who really cared about him. Uh, because it, it's really, really passionate. It's really nice. Uh, writer for this episode is, once again, Rod Serling, of course. Um, I, I actually wonder how much of this script came from Serling's personal experiences. Um, he was injured in the war and witnessed horrific things while overseas. Um, and he suffered from flashbacks and nightmares. He actually channeled a lot of those feelings and emotions into his writing. That's why he had such a big output of content from... Uh, for for writing because he just tapped into his his demons and stuff. Um, 
there's a monologue in the episode where Barbara talks about disappearing into the past when the present is too much to bear. And I kind of wonder if this, this is a thought that Serling had during the war and this is, if this was kind of a comfort for him, it, it might be a stretch, but that's my, that was what I thought when watching this episode and director for this episode is Mitchell Lyson. Uh, he directed three episodes, all from season one. This was the first one to air, but it was the last in the production order. He was nominated for an Oscar for 1929's Dynamite movie for Best Art Direction, um, which is which is worth noting. And this particular episode, um, the 16 millimeter Shrine, it looks just stunning. Like it looks absolutely beautiful. The contrast in the lighting between the viewing room and the foyer set just perfectly defines the seclusion that Barbara is in and kind of instantly pits the viewer into this somewhat surreal world where she's defiant of, of change and ignorant of, of willfully ignorant of the, of the present. And it's kind of this very, very clearly defined dichotomy between a very dark and dark and lonely screening room. And then this very brightly lit and, just absolutely beautiful um, set, foyer set. Um, and a lot of that is probably, uh, can pro- probably be credited to George T. Clemens, who was the uh, director of photography on the episode. Uh, and this episode, <laughs> like, okay, uh, on, a- on Netflix, Netflix has the whole series, except for season four, um, streaming, and it's in HD. And this episode really, really makes me want to buy the complete series Blu-ray set. I'm, I'm going to buy it eventually. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm, well, I'm committing an entire podcast to it, so I'm, I need to own the Blu-ray set. But it's just a problem of funds. So, hey, if you want to, you know, submit or donate some money to Anthology, I'll buy the Blu-ray set with it, which would in turn, you know, increase the quality of the show, I'm sure, probably. Um but anyway, so the the other side of this episode being just absolutely stunning, and when I say stunning, I mean just it's in HD and it's 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 clearly remastered and everything. But what you have on the screen is, like I said before, the the contrast between the dark room and and the rest of the sets of the episode. But there's also footage on the projector projected on the screen that comes across just it, it comes across as so so crisp and clear and it's it's kind of deep in this this dark room and it's i don't know it's just something that really really just looked just beautiful and this this episode really really makes me nervous uh for when i eventually get to the six episodes in season two that were shot on tape as a cost-cutting measure by cbs um so uh, let's get into my feelings as a viewer on this episode um this is a very dark story um Barbara is a prisoner to herself. She's willingly secluding herself as a way to shield herself from the world in her old, in her age. She's not even really that old. Um, it's actually an interesting uh, tie back, I, I guess, to uh, Ida Lupino's uh, personal life. She she had trouble getting roles uh, because they were being uh, sought after. She reached a point in her career where the roles that she was wanting and that she was known for were going to the younger actresses. So that's why she turned to directing and and writing and and producing and all that. So I kind of wonder if she was, if her casting was, was if that was the reason for her casting in this, in this episode. 
Um, I couldn't find anything to really corroborate that, but it's an interest. There's an interesting correlation between the actress and the the character she played on screen. But this episode is is just really just downright depressing. Um, there's another interesting correlation between Barbara's Barbara as a character and Al Denton from the uh, previous episode. Barbara was a notable and talented person. She was successful, uh, much like Denton was as a gunslinger. But now her time has passed and she's in a bad spot. The difference is that while Denton runs the risk of being pathetic and kind of he's he's kind of a low she he's viewed as just he's viewed he's viewed as pathetic whether the viewer kind of sides with that analysis or not. But Barbara is more grounded and her problems are are a lot more relatable. Um, she's viewed as as being down on her luck and being kind of over the hill. Um, as her agent, who's who's her greatest confidant in this episode, actually said to the uh, studio executive <clears throat> after he went off on her. But the difference, or, there's a relatability to it. And if viewers can't relate to the growing older and losing your youth and missing opportunities because of your age or, or anything like that, then if they can't relate to that, then the self-imposed isolation is something that we could probably all relate to. At least I hope so. <laughs> she's shielding herself from the world and she's unwilling to confront her problems. Um, who doesn't really feel that way sometimes? I mean, sometimes you just want to kind of sit in a room and watch TV all day. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to socialize. You don't want to go out and do anything. At least that's how I feel sometimes. Um, hell, I'm recording this in my apartment after spending the night just watching the Twilight Zone and and, uh, and Seinfeld, and just because I didn't feel like going out and doing anything, so that's something that we can all kind of really latch onto in this episode. And it's there's that's the universality aspect of it uh, that is so 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 what the Twilight Zone is known for. And also personally, I can relate to it because she's obsessively viewing something, and I created a blog and two podcasts about how I am a, how I am an obsessive viewer. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, the performances, I really, really want to highlight the performances in this episode because they are incredibly strong. Martin Balsam and Ida Lupino, they both uh, they tap into the emotions of their characters so incredibly well, and they manage to display more range. In this episode, than you, than you would ever expect to come from a tw- uh, from a half hour TV show, especially from the 1950s, when, as I said before, this uh, uh, this particular genre, this this show was just airing. Like this was before, uh, this was the fourth episode to air, and it was before they really had a handle of of how successful this was. It was it was produced later than. Uh, before anyone knew what the Twilight Zone was, and they put in just such strong performances, and their performances are just absolutely, honestly, they're they're cinematic in scope, and they're grounded in such incredible believability. I mean, you really believe that that Danny, the agent uh, played by Martin Balsam, that he that he cares for cares for Barbara and feels really sorry for her at times, and there's this nice back and forth between them throughout this episode where he's, he's trying to kind of get her out of her shell, trying to get her out of this isolation that she's put herself in. But he's also growing impatient. He's, he's not afraid to kind of, uh, tell her, tell her what it is, tell her, tell her how it is. And on the flip side, she is like, even, even though Barbara is her own antagonist, you, 
you can still root for her and what and you want her to find peace uh she's a belligerent diva when she finds out about the role um and she's obnoxious when she sees her now aged co-star but the viewer knows she's not exactly at fault and a lot of that is because of ida's ida lupino's performance in this episode it's it's so versatile the way that she can go from just exuding so much happiness just seeing her 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 films on screen um into the the hopeful ambition of of being getting ready to see her co-star or getting ready to go see uh see about a role and, and it's kind of this you can really see how she's trapped herself into this world that she's constructed for herself where she's still the youthful and um sought after talent um which is what her i guess downfall of the episode uh comes to um which brings me to that the the ending surprised me and it kind of made me reconsider my thoughts on mr denton on doomsday even um it may have been unfair to fault doomsday for its lack of twilight zone world building like i, I mentioned that uh, the Twilight Zone is about ordinary people in really uh, supernatural and, and un- otherworldly kind of environments and stuff. But that's kind of – that's probably unfair, especially this early in the series because a lot of these episodes are probably like this one and Mr. Denton on Doomsday. Um, here in the 16-millimeter shrine, until the final minutes of of the episode – it plays out like a drama about an aging actress clinging to the past. Like there's nothing supernatural about it. And that kind of makes it that it makes you really, really invested in the characters and the story going on. And when the ending comes and Danny sees present day, Barbara on the screen amidst her, her adoring co-stars and, and leading men and everything. It's a shock. It's just an absolute shock. It reminded me of the final image of the shining, uh, and I, and I kind of wonder if Kubrick drew inspiration from this episode when he adapted Stephen King's novel because um, that was 20 years later that that movie came out. Um, but it's effective here in The Twilight Zone. Uh, Danny finds the scarf that, that Barbara discards when, when he screams for her to come back and everything. Uh, he finds it in the, in, at the bottom of the staircase. And, I kinda, and it kind of reminded me of the bit of trivia from Where Is Everybody and how uh, – Earl Holloman wanted Mike to bring a page of the phone book back with him. I kind of wonder if that was a, if that was an, if that was the reason that they put that in there, if it was just an independent thing um, that was just kind of bouncing around in Serling's head when he wrote the episode. But all in all, the 16 millimeter shrine is a really, really good episode. It's a really solid episode. Um, I noticed on IMDb in the episode rating, and granted, uh, I don't know how uh, I don't know how accurate this is to gauging um, viewer reception for this episode or anything like that. But and I haven't looked up the Nielsen ratings of the time or anything like that. But it's only rated at a six point nine, and I think that's 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 a disservice to it because it's a very strong episode. It's a very um, depressing episode, but but strong in its own right. Um, so I. I I have a couple points about, or I have a point about the historical and cultural context of this episode. Somewhat, it's uh, it's more cultural context. It's not really context. It's just a reflection of the time of the the era and the time we're in now. But uh, there's a timelessness to the idea of the aging movie star. Uh, Barbara is an actress who clings to her past as a leading lady, 
when the only role she can manage was our supporting roles as a mother to whoever the new starlet is. It's uh, it's at the time it was reflective of the troubles that Ida that led Ida Lupino to turn to directing and, and producing and all that. Um, but it, it's interesting to note that it's it's a problem with Hollywood in general. At the time of this recording, and I'm dating the podcast, but. Uh, it's it's the weekend of Comic-Con, and Jennifer Lawrence and her Hunger Games co-star Josh Hutcherson uh, were on a panel at Comic-Con on Friday. This is Sunday that I'm recording this uh, for, Mocking, for Mockingjay Part 2. And uh, I, I believe Hutcherson joked that Lawrence is 24 and might as well be 40 in Hollywood's eyes, and Jennifer Lawrence kind of laughed and agreed and said, yeah, really. Um, and I think that that's a really – it's – it's a trait of Hollywood, and I don't think that it will ever change. Um, it's just the industry seeks seeks uh, young talent and kind of bleeds them until they're too, they're deemed too old, and then they move on to the next one. It's just the way that the Hollywood system works, and I think that this episode of the Twilight Zone is a nice not necessarily deconstruction of that, or maybe maybe it is a deconstruction of that, but a nice shot at it, I guess. And finally, before I go, um, I have a couple pieces of trivia for this episode. Uh, first, the staircase set in this episode that that in the in the uh, I guess foyer set. Um, it'll be reused in three other episodes in this season of the Twilight Zone, and I'm really excited about that because it is a gorgeous, gorgeous set. Um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, and then also I, while doing research for this episode, I looked up on IMDb and I looked at the trivia section for the episode and one of the trivia pieces talks about how, um, the name Trenton rhymes with Denton and this episode was aired right after the uh, Mr. Denton on Doomsday episode. And I was just like, I don't, okay, that's, I guess that's trivia. That's, (laughs) it's very trivial, but it's there. So, yeah. Well, there you have it. We have our two episodes for this week's uh, anthology podcast uh, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Both episodes kind of have an interesting correlation in that their their protagonists are kind of down on their luck and seeking a second chance. And both episodes conclude in somewhat upbeat fashion. Um, Denton injured himself and, and injured a gunfighter to where neither of them will hold a gun again. And that's good for them. <laughs> Um, and then also Barbara Trenton, I, I guess it's a happy ending for it's, it's a little ambiguous. It's open to interpretation. Uh, there's a smile on, on, uh, Danny's face at the end where he, he tells her that he kind of says to no one that, uh, two wishes, Barbara, uh, wishes that come true. And it's, I mean, she got her wish. She receded back into the past, uh, the way that she wanted to. But it's a little bit of a downer ending because uh, she didn't really come to terms with the truth or anything like that. Uh, so anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Anthology. Uh, next week's episode, or next episode, is going to cover the episodes of T- The Twilight Zone entitled Walking Distance and Escape Clause. Both are very good episodes. One is one I'm going to have a lot to say because it's... Uh, got a nice time travel element to it and i love time travel so once again thanks for listening and uh i'll see you next week
Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or you can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out The Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at obsessiveviewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. And check out obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Join the Obsessive Viewer podcast on October 16th, 2015 at the Irving Theater in Indianapolis for The Obsessive Viewer Presents Shocktober in Irvington Part 2. It's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local artists J.P. Leck and Snapshot Productions. There will be giveaways, raffles, interviews with the filmmakers, and so much more. All proceeds will go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. Go to shocktoberinirvington.com for more details. And prepare to be shocked.